Welcome. We're glad y'all are here. We're going to be in Habakkuk tonight, so um, that's right after Nahum, if that helps you. That's where we were last week. And we'll have a two-part um, on Habakkuk. <laughs> if this is your first time with us, on Wednesday nights we do what, what are called overview um, survey type of studies, where we are, on Sunday mornings, we move real slow through the Bible, and on Wednesday nights we move uh, a little bit more quickly and spend less time as to try to just kind of get an idea of what each book says rather than an in-depth study of you know, particular words and why they're used and all that kind of stuff. So uh, we'll be in Habakkuk. Um, we have been moving through doing this since Genesis, and so by the end of the semester we'll hopefully be um, done with the Minor Prophets and maybe move on into the Gospels uh, in January. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, but let me pray, and then we will dive right in. Lord, we're thankful for... Um, for the opportunity to stop in the middle of the week um, to consider your word. Uh, the fact that we get to do it almost every week is amazing, and I'm thankful for it. Lord, um, my, my prayer tonight is for honesty um, and attentiveness to the condition of our hearts as Habakkuk quickly goes to some very deep questions, I pray that the depth of those questions would lead to honesty in our view of life, our view of trial, and our view of you in the midst of it. Lord, you are great and greatly to be praised, no matter the circumstance. And I pray that you would show us that uh, in spades tonight. We love you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we get to Habakkuk, I want to give you a brief update. The church plant launched on Sunday. They officially had their first service in North Rockwall. Um, they said there were about 200 people there, which is awesome. And their offering was a good bit more than ours. So I'm not bitter. I am happy for them. Um, no, it's, uh, it's pretty sweet. So seeing what happened, um, Lance was preaching out of Acts. Uh, apparently the sermon was wonderful. Um, Aaron Hamilton was leading worship that was sweet, and um, the child care went well. They you know, had to set up stuff in the gym to accommodate kids, and a lot of moving parts, and it seems like they did a really great job. So as a body who is in, involved and invested in the well-being of that church, um, I wanted to give you all that update and, and encourage you all to continue to uh, pray for them, because uh, that was week one, and uh, there are more weeks ahead. So... Um, but very, very encouraging first week. So we praise God for that. Um, so I, I prayed tonight for honesty because we're in Habakkuk. And Habakkuk goes very deep, very quickly. Um, and particularly tonight, we're going to be talking about um, hopelessness and being angry at God. So it's not really light fare, um, but we'll dive right in with a question to get everything going. Um, and I, I, wanna, I want you to remember that um, as we ask hard questions and dig deep, um, our goal is to be reminded of God's purposes in everything, including our trials. And that's, there's some pretty significant trials here in the book of Habakkuk. So the first question, to get the ball rolling, are what are some things that cause us to feel genuinely hopeless? What are some things that cause us to feel genuinely hopeless? And I, that's just why I'm praying for honesty, because I, I really... I don't just want good conversation to be facilitated tonight. I really hope that you deal with issues in your own heart and issues that are difficult. Um, and so this question is kind of a deep question that cuts right to it. What are some things that cause us to feel 
genuinely hopeless. Yeah, when someone you love either leaves the church or leaves the faith, um, that is a, certainly a, a hopeless feeling comes about in that moment for sure. What are some other things that cause us to feel hopeless? When somebody passes and you don't know mm. if they're saved or not, I mean, yeah. 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 When someone passes who you don't know where they are with the Lord, that is a, that's a hard thing. What are other things that maybe make us feel hopeless? Mm, yeah. 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 Yeah, if a family member um, doesn't want to talk about salvation issues, that is that's very difficult. So it's interesting, the first three are related to people's salvation. You know, even as people who believe in a sovereign God, who believe that God is the one who does the work of salvation in the life of a person changing their heart, even for a big group of people who believe in that, that's still one of the most hopeless feelings when you don't know and you desire to know that someone is, is in fact saved and, and does love Jesus. What are some other things, day-to-day things, life things? Not just end-of-life things, but day-to-day things. A vice? Yeah. Yeah, a vice, a recurring sin of some sort, a recurring struggle of something that you're just like, man, I keep, it just keeps coming up, and I'm praying about it, and it's hard, and it's difficult, but it keeps happening. Absolutely. What else? Feeling like your labor was pointless or fruitless. Anytime we endeavor to do anything, we have a desired outcome, and that's why we took steps to get to it. And so if you take steps to get to a desired outcome and look back and say, well, that was something, maybe. I don't know. That's hard. That's very difficult. What else? Yeah, overwhelming circumstances. Where you're just looking at everything that's on the plate and going, I don't even know how this is going to work. I don't even know how I'm going to connect all these dots or work through all this. What else? Lack of direction. direction. Yeah, you know you need to go somewhere, but where? Where where do I even step? Where's the first step? What did you say back there? Depression. Depression. Absolutely. There are a number of people that struggle with depression. I've struggled with depression, and there's there's times where I'm struggling with it, and I, I don't make sense of it. It's like... I want to rationalize what's irrational about me in the moment, and you can't do that. You do take your thoughts captive, but man, when you're thinking, I'm, you, when you're sitting there going, I'm among the most blessed people to ever walk on planet Earth, why am I depressed? That is a hopeless feeling for sure. What else? Yeah, family dysfunction. That is very, very difficult. I don't know if it's the topic, but it feels real hot in here. Okay. 
we kick those thermostats down or turn the fans on or something? We don't need to make it more awkward. It's already awkward enough. Yeah. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. 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 When you, when you see something like refugees, you see something on TV or a, something on the news where you see someone getting out of a little boat with a two year old, and you're just like, I mean, there's that helpless, like, what, what can we do? Why is this happening? And then you realize, oh, it's not just them. There's a million people behind them. A million people behind them. So let me shift the question a little bit. What are some things that cause people to get upset with God over? What are some things that cause us to become upset with God? Unexpected death of a young person. That's a huge one. Weather. Yeah. I find that people get unhappy with God regarding weather, no matter what the weather is. <laughs> if it's hot out, they're tired of it being hot and they want it to be cold. And two days into it being cold, they're like whining because it's too cold. So yeah, we're, we're fickle when it comes to weather. Unhealed illnesses. Unhealed illnesses. That's hard. When you try to do all the right things and it doesn't work. Terrorism. terrorism. Absolutely. You look at terrorism and you're thinking, God... You can do something about that, and that's hard. Sometimes that causes us to get upset with God. Uh -huh. Yeah. When, say that again? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, when, good, when people who are known for their, their authenticity and their goodness and they're putting other people first when they pass, that, that's hard to understand, or when they pass in a tragic way. So here's, here's a question. What's the difference between crying out to God in prayer and crying out to God in frustration? What's the difference between those two things? Perfect answer. When you cry out to God in prayer, you're actually thinking there's, there's answers to be found. And if you're just in frustration, you're venting, you're mad. It's, it's no different than yelling at God. And so there's different ways to cry out to God, and we have to be careful because sometimes it just busts out of us in, in, a, in a desperate moment like the one we're going to look at tonight. And a prayerful crying out looks for answers from God who has answers, but just a frustration is just this expression of, of where, how you're feeling. Uh, what are some different ways that people genuinely try to find happiness? Different ways that we try to find happiness. Love. Love. Whatever that means. Do what? Money. Oh, yeah. Escapism of you name it, whatever your flavor is. Anything else? Isolation. Friendships. Absolutely. Romantic love. Yeah that perfect person that fills that void that's the shape of them in your heart. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Bike racing. Bike racing. <laughs> oh, that was side-by-side -side answers. It makes it even better. Romantic love. Bike racing. Oh, I love it. Love it. 
All right, turn to Habakkuk 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 4. It says, The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise, so the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. We're going to spend some time in these first four verses to really dive in, because essentially Habakkuk is asking God, how am I supposed to be happy if you don't care? That's a way to reword all that. How am I supposed to be okay with the way things are if you don't care about the way things are, God? I mean, it's almost hard to read those, those words because you're like, uh, the lightning's going to strike. It, it seems so disrespectful to God. What, is God. what does Habakkuk accuse God of with these particular questions? What is he accusing God of with the questions? Not hearing. Yeah, turning away from the problem. Being idle, not doing anything. What else does he accuse him of? Injustice. If there's injustice and God doesn't do something about it, then he's saying, well, God, the injustice is your fault. You could do something about it. What else does he accuse him of there? Indifference. Yeah, you don't care. Why are you not doing anything? If you cared, you would do something is the implied tone of this whole little four verses. So being idle, not caring about injustice, and being indifferent. That's how we kick off the lovely minor prophet of Habakkuk, where he's looking at God and saying, you don't care, I don't believe you, Um, what are you doing? I'm seeing violence, I'm seeing heartache, bad people are in leadership, and so justice doesn't even go forward. But if it does go forward, it goes forward in a way where it's not justice, it's just some perverted form of justice. So Habakkuk is offering up this complaint to God that is, I think it kind of takes us all by surprise because it's so, like, from the gut. Like, he is real honest and he shoots real straight with God. And so, before we even look at what God does, I just want to spend a few, t- a few moments on, on these four verses. One detail that we have to nail down in order to be on the same page in our study is we have to, we have to nail down this violence, this iniquity, this wrong, the destruction, the strife, the contention, the wickedness, and the injustice. Where is it coming from? That's a really important point on this because when I first read it, my assumption on where it was coming from was wrong. Just what's your first assumption? When you read that and you see all that's going on, where do you think maybe that violence is, is coming from? War? Who, though? Who do we know to be very powerful during this time? The Assyrians. Yeah, that was my first thought. Okay, he's talking about the Assyrians. And as I dug a little deeper, what I found is there's really two schools of thought, and the one that I uh, probably kind of defaulted to wasn't really right. Um, One thought is that it could be coming from the Assyrians because they're the ones in power right now. And so I, I read those first four verses, and I'm thinking, oh, all this contention, all this heartache, all these things that are going wrong are coming from the Assyrians. But there's another school of thought um, that is actually has a lot more support for it, and your ESV study Bibles would consider this, and most of the commentators that we generally respect would go towards saying it's coming from the leadership of Israel. Now, this is an important point, because Habakkuk, a prophet 
of Israel is speaking about the terrible things that are happening because of the distorted and wicked leadership of his own people. And that makes this a little bit different. So it's the leadership of Judah itself that we are going to see is the, uh, the ones who are causing this. And, and the way we're going to consider that is turn to 2 Kings 23. You can keep bookmarking Habakkuk because we'll certainly go back there. But 2 Kings 23, I'm going to kind of hop through this chapter. And the reason we're going to 2 Kings 23, it's because um, these are the reforms of Josiah. Josiah came into power after, shortly after, the prophet Habakkuk spoke. Now, it's hard to nail down the exact time. It's like late 600s BC. Um, it's hard to nail down the exact time, but we do know that what happened after that, one of the next major movements was Josiah coming into power and finding the law in the old temple and then, then reading it and then saying, okay, we're going to do what God says because we know what God says and apparently we're not even close. So what happens is if we see those four verses in the first part of Habakkuk, we then go to 2 Kings 23, and when we see the kind of reform that was required, we know the state of Israel that they were being reformed from and out of. Does that make sense? It's sort of like emptying the vacuum cleaner after you vacuumed out your car. Like you can look in the vacuum cleaner and know how disgusting your car was because of what you had to change. Does that make sense? I thought that was like the best example. It just popped into my head. Like it wasn't even in my notes. And I'm proud of it as I'm saying it, but I don't know. Um, yeah, so if you vacuum out your car, you get a bunch of junk. You can see what the condition was of your car just by looking in there. So we can see what the condition is of Israel during the time of Habakkuk by looking at 2 Kings 23. So it says, and I'm going to go through about 27 verses, but I'm not going to do it. I'm not just going to read all of it. We're going to kind of bounce a little bit. But it says, The king sent, and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. And the king went up to the house of the Lord, and with him all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the prophets, all the people, both great and small. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. So Josiah is saying, hey, we found this important book. We're going to read it, and then we're going to do what it says. It would be like us not having Bibles for generations and then someone finds one and says, hey, let's read this and do what it says. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul. He would have read that in Deuteronomy to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people joined in the covenant. So, so here's what we're going to have to change. And the king commanded Hilkiah, the high priest and the priests of the second order and the keepers of the threshold to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels made for Baal, for Asherah. Okay, that's bad. That'd be like saying, okay, let's get all the idols out of the sanctuary so that we can start doing things right. Let's get all the drugs and pornography out of the sanctuary so we can have a place to worship. That's about the equivalent of what we're talking about here. So that's the first part of the reform. So the first part of the reform says, whoa, that was Israel? Israel had prophets of Baal and vessels for Baal, for Asherah, and for all the host of heaven. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. So Josiah's like, get them out. We're going to burn them down to ashes. And we're going to take those ashes over to Bethel. And he deposed the priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to make offerings in the high places at the cities of Judah and around Jerusalem, those who burned incense to Baal. 
to the sun and the moon and the constellations and, the, and all the host of heavens. So not only had someone made vessels for Baal, for the Asherah, they had appointed priests. The priesthood's a pretty holy thing, right? They'd appointed their own priests to offer sacrifices to Baal and to the sun and to the moon and to the stars. And so this is Israel we're talking about. They were in bad shape. And he brought out the Asherah from the house of the Lord outside Jerusalem to the brook Kidron and burned it at the brook Kidron, beat it to the dust, cast the dust upon the graves of the common people. I mean, he's, he is thrown down. And he broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes. The male cult prostitutes. None of those are good words. You put them together, they're even worse. The male cult prostitutes of Israel. The male cult prostitutes of the people of God. Not the way it's supposed to be at all. Like someone signed up for that job. Like not only was there a job opening for them, but someone did it. Terrible. Who were in the house of the Lord, where the women wove hangings for the Asherah. And he brought all the priests out of the cities of Judah and defiled the high places where the priests had made offerings from Geba to Beersheba. And he broke down the high places of the gates that were at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the governor. He goes on. They had unleavened bread. And he defiled Tophtha, Toph, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no one might burn his son or his daughter as an offering to Moloch. Okay. To recap, vessels to Baal, male cult prostitutes, and burning their children to the idol of Moloch. Like we bring money and put it in bags. They were bringing babies and putting it in a mouth of a burned idol that had fire in it. Israel, God's people. So the reforms were needed, to say the least. Look at verse 14. And he broke to pieces the pillars and cut down the ashram and filled their places with the bones of men. Moreover, the altar of Bethel, the high place erected by Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin, that altar with the high place he pulled down and burned, reducing it to dust, and he also burned the Asherah. And he sent and took bones out of the tombs and burned them on the altar and defiled it, according to the word of the Lord that the man of God proclaimed, who had predicted these things. Um, verse 21, the king commanded all the people, keep the Passover to the Lord your God, as it is written in this covenant, for no such Passover has been kept since the days of the judges. So that Passover that they were supposed to keep from generation to generation every single year, it hadn't happened since the time of the judges. What is the Asherah? Does anyone want to answer that? The Asherah poles? Say that again? It's an idol. Yeah, I picture a totem pole, but um, I don't know if that's exactly accurate. Um, these were poles that were erected um, all over the place where, um, where they uh, gave sacrifices. That's about all I know. Oh, they were all throughout. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Does anyone else know anything about Asherah poles? It was a fertility god. The one with the flute? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know about fertility gods. Okay. Yeah, 
Fantastic. So they didn't get it right. That's for dang sure. It goes on to say, but in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was kept to the Lord. Moreover, Josiah put away the mediums and the necromancers. I'm not sure what the difference is between those two. I think they're similar. And the household gods and the idols and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem that he might establish the words of the law. So to be clear, the state of Israel at the time that, that uh, Habakkuk is prophesying, they've got male cult prostitutes, they've got vessels, they've got the Asherah poles, they've got all these idols to Baal, they've got babies being sacrificed to Moloch, um, they've got um, palm readers, mediums, necromancers. Um, I mean, like, they had fallen very far from where they were supposed to be. So that was the, that was why, that's why most people say he's talking about the terrible state of Israel and the way that the leadership's running them into the ground because no one is stepping in. Eventually, Josiah stepped in, but Habakkuk is before Josiah. So turn back to Habakkuk 1. Sometimes the plight of God's people does not come from an outside source, but from the consequences of their own wickedness. That's something that we need to see here before we move any forward. Sometimes the plight of God's people doesn't come from an outside source. Um, sometimes we can, some, sometimes, I want to be careful, there's no one better than the Christians at playing the victim. Like there's a, there's a lot of whining on Facebook. Let's just put it out there. And so um, it's important at this moment to just consider that when trials come, we can have a tendency of looking, out, look, looking for outside influences before we look at our own hearts. And I just want to call that to all of our attention as we're moving through Habakkuk. Um, sometimes in marriage, we look at our spouse. There's a problem with your marriage, and so you just look at your spouse. Or in parenting, there's a problem in parenting, you may just look at the kid. Or in your finances, you may just look at the spreadsheet. And I've got a million different examples in my own life of, of problems or something or a trial, and I will look at, oh, well, that, if, that would not be the case if that was in better order, if that person didn't do this, or if this person didn't say that, wouldn't have to be dealing with this or spending time on this, and it's easy to look outside. But I think the text tonight is telling us that we should look at our hearts and not always consider that it's an outside influence. It may be an inward issue. Mark 7.20, you don't have to turn there, but you may write it in your notes. 7.20-23 through 23 says, And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. That's a really good description of the way that Israel was. When Habakkuk is saying, How long do I have to cry for help? There's violence everywhere. This is wicked. The only kind of justice that goes forth is perverted justice because people were allowing their hearts to be governed by something other than God. They're allowing their hearts to be governed by something other than God. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. If a person is defiled, other people can be defiled, and when other people are defiled, a kingdom can be defiled. And that was what was going on in Israel right now. So in Habakkuk 1, Habakkuk is guilty of something that we are often guilty of in these first four verses. He takes a few correct facts and draws some faulty conclusions, right? Are things bad? Absolutely. Is there injustice? Sure, yeah. Is there iniquity? Yes. Is there destruction and violence? Yes. Is there strife and contention? Yes. Is the law paralyzed? Yes. Is justice not 
going forth properly? Yes, those are true facts. But what we sometimes do is we take some true facts and we draw faulty, faulty conclusions. So what is the obvious faulty conclusion that he draws with true facts? That God doesn't care. What are some current examples of, way we, of ways we may draw faulty conclusions with true facts? What? Yeah, our country's not in good shape right now. Yeah, you can watch the news and get a lot of facts. So what are some conclusions we could draw that are wrong? Yeah, yeah. Ah, yeah, God's idol, the devil's winning. Those are two big wrong conclusions. The devil's not winning. We're on the winning team. We know how it ends. Yeah, so we could draw conclusions. I've heard um, well-meaning Christians say, God hates America. We're just, this is penance. This is what happens when, you, when you're wrong. No, God, God doesn't hate America. America's not the promised land. That's a surprise for some people. Huh? Yeah, yeah, with Israel. You could, yeah. Yeah, they're still here. In case y'all are paying attention. Um, not, not real bright to set yourself against them. Um, uh, and there's a whole can of worms we could open right there, and we're just not going to, okay? So we're not going to go down that route. Um, but we're not going down the route. Don't, don't you, Yeah, when we're, yeah, when we're fleshly and fickle, sometimes we make the mistake of thinking that God's being fleshly and fickle right there with us, like He's as moody as we are, or something. And so, um, we, there's lots of faulty conclusions that can be drawn um, from correct facts. It, it can happen a lot, and we have to watch out for it. I think that's part of the text tonight. What we can take with us when you have facts, you see things line up. I mean, poor Kai Martin. I'm going to share it so y'all can just pray for him. He's a new elder at a church that just launched. He sold his house, and it flooded on the way out. He bought a new house that flooded when he got into it. And then he went to a hotel room that flooded when he went to go hang out. So poor Kai, Kai and Emily. I mean, you could look at that and say, 
I'm just trying to plant a church. And I, the flood, you promised no more flood. And I got it times three. And so you can see things like that. And those are facts. Yeah, that flooded. Oh, yep, that flooded. Yep, it's going to cost money. Oh, yeah, you went to the hotel and somehow it flooded too. But you don't draw these conclusions about, well, God must not want him to plant a church. No, no, you don't draw conclusions like that. We have to be careful about not drawing faulty conclusions with true facts. Now, clearly God is never indifferent towards injustice. That's the problem. That's the faulty thing. That's the faulty conclusion that he's drawing here. It sounds like he's saying, God, you don't care. And clearly God does care. He's not indifferent. But there's actually something good in Habakkuk's complaint. What do y'all think might be good about Habakkuk's complaint? Yes! He doesn't like the way it is. He's not comfortable in his environment to such a degree that he, in fact, expects change. He, uh, Dever has a note. He says, he says, while it may be hard to read those first four verses, and it's kind of shocking, he says, Habakkuk not only assumed that God could do something about the injustice in Judah, he assumed that it was occurring only because God was allowing it. The thing that he didn't like was the fact that God was allowing it. He also assumed that Judah's injustice and wrongs were inconsistent with God's character. So even though he may not present it in the most wonderfully eloquent way that doesn't offend any of us because we're all so ridiculously PC, there's good things in there. There are things that he doesn't like that he's not supposed to like, and he's going to the right person for change, and he is not wrong in expecting that, in fact, God will bring about change. So the question that I have is, how did Habakkuk know true things about God? That's a great answer. Hopefully, he got them out of the Word because that's kind of where we get our true things about God. Yeah, Habakkuk had Jeremiah, Isaiah, Micah, Jonah, and possibly Nahum that he could have accessed. And we're absolutely certain that he had the first five books of the Bible and the Psalms of David. So what he, the conclusions he drew about God came from God's Word, in fact. And so the question that's kind of obvious is how can we expect to know about God if we don't learn about Him from His Word? All these things that Habakkuk knows about God and things that he's aiming for, the change that he knows needs to be bringing, brought about, and the things that are wrong that he knows are wrong, he knows because he, he went to the Word for it. And it's the same for us. It's, it's sort of a surface reminder. It's not a real deep point of the night, but look for God's truth in God's Word. Look for God's truth particularly in God's promises. That's what we cling to. Before we look at the content of God's answer, I want you to look just verse 5 in, in y'all's Bibles. Is there a little subheading above verse 5? What's it say? The Lord's answer. Like it doesn't say insert lightning strike. It doesn't say um, uh, excessive smiting or anything like that. Um, before we look at the content of the answer, I just, what is the existence of the answer itself revealed to Habakkuk? The existence of an answer, what does that reveal to Habakkuk? He is listening. He's there. He can hear you, you big whiner. He's, he's there, he's listening, and so just the fact that there is an answer is something I kind of want us to enjoy, that God is in fact listening and God is in fact aware. Two things in these opening verses. One, we're challenged to trust God no matter the circumstances. I don't know if any of us have been in a more dire circumstance than Habakkuk is in right here with Israel. 
Because we haven't talked about Assyria, but they're still surrounded by Assyria. Remember, Jerusalem, capital of Judah, on top of a hill, 2,500 feet above sea level. Assyrians are just filling in the gaps between and kind of moving up the hill. It's literally like you can see the rising tide of the Assyrian evil empire. And then we're going to find out something else in a few minutes that's another example. So yes, Assyria is still a problem. And yes, other people will be a problem in the future. However, this uh, major issue is that um, we're challenged to trust God no matter the circumstances, even when the circumstances are really, really bad in this case. And the second thing is it's good to examine what our hearts are saying about God. Like That's kind of what Habakkuk is. It's a study of why is Habakkuk's heart saying what it's saying about God? Why does he say what he says in those first verses? And then God actually gives an answer. And then he says more. And then God gives an answer. And it does that for three chapters. This is part of taking your thoughts captive, as it says in 2 Corinthians 1.5. We ask things like, why do I think this? Like, don't stop. At, when you have something, a thought about God or a thought about yourself or a thought about just reality that's not quite in touch, you know it's not right, don't just say, oh, I shouldn't think that. It's stupid for thinking that. Idiot. Stop it. <clears throat> you don't do that. Say, why am I thinking that? What is, what's in my heart that's making me think that about God or think that about people? If you're a cynical person, if you're the kind of person who's like, whatever, it ain't going to change, it ain't going to get any better. That, person's, that person is like that because they've always been like that and they're always going to be like that. If you're cynical, ask why. Why does my heart think that? Why is my heart in this place? What does the Bible say about what my heart thinks? How do I reconcile the thoughts of my heart with the reality that we know from the Bible in God's promises? Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, once said, Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? It's a really great quote. Some of y'all have probably already heard it. I'll say it again. Martin Lloyd-Jones, Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? And now Habakkuk gets to listen to God in verse 5. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that's another name for the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves, their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and just take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men, whose own might is their God. So God's response to Habakkuk is bizarre. Habakkuk is upset that his people are so violent and wicked and things are so backwards in the kingdom and there's no justice. God says, it's okay, I'm raising up the Babylonians to kick your tail. I mean, that's a, that's a seriously interesting answer. Probably not what he was expecting at all. Verse 5, 
First, Habakkuk needs to lift up his eyes from his current situation and see, wonder, and be astounded. Why? Why does he need to lift up his eyes from the current situation and see and wonder and be astounded? Why? It takes the circus off his fo- take the circus off his circumstances. That was a good one. You write that down. The circus off his circumstances. Um, it takes the focus off of his circumstances and it puts his eyes on God. Why is it necessary to put his eyes on God? What is He's reminding him of who has the power. What is God doing, particularly? He's going to be a righteous God. How, particularly? What's he doing? Yes, and how? I'm doing a work in your days you would not believe if I told you. God's saying, I'm doing something. If I told you what I was doing, you wouldn't believe me. So at this point, lift up your eyes, see, wonder, and be astounded. Because I'm doing work you don't know about. Why might a follower of God forget about the work that God is doing? Yeah, the problem is our circumstance becomes the lens by which we view God as opposed to God being the lens by which we view our circumstances. And so it's not, like when we look at this, it's not hard for us to, I mean, we don't, we don't look at this and go, I've, I've never, I can't believe these people. They would allow their circumstances to, to, to make them not trust God, to take their eyes off of God. It's always good to remember that God is doing more than you are. It's always good to remember that God loves people more than you do. It's good to remember that God cares about His kingdom way more than you do. It's good to remember that God's not nearly as overwhelmed about your trial as you are. In Habakkuk's scenario, it's good for Habakkuk to remember uh, God cares more about injustice than you do, Habakkuk. Habakkuk's pretty convinced, God, I'm like up here with injustice and you're like down here. And so that's when, remember, we talked about it Sunday. That's when you change the gospel. That's when you change the narrative, when you think that it's God who needs to change instead of you. Habakkuk's the one who needs to change. Israel's the one who needs to change. And God doesn't need to change, but he is going to bring about change through his word. That's how it always happens. Yeah. Yeah, it says, go ahead. He has Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He, we know what the, the books that he has read. Um, we don't know a ton about Habakkuk outside of what we see just in that first part. And so he does have enough to draw on for sure. And as you mentioned, David in the Psalms, in Psalm 62, I mean, 
my soul, why are you at turmoil within, the, uh, within me? And he counsels his own soul to be silent and to wait. And it's a really great example. That's a very good example. Um, on this, um, in Habakkuk's scenario, um, these things that we might, uh, what are some things that we might wrongly perceive that God cares about less than we care about it? Just, just in our own scenario, going from that to us. What are some things that we might perceive that we care about more than God in our, in our setting here? Righteousness? Yeah. Salvation for the lost. Yeah, evangelism. God, there's all these lost people. What are you doing, God? What else? Our needs. Worship. Abortion. Both. What else? A house that's always messy. The weather. There it is again. The future. Yeah. We're anxious because we don't. We're bit. Uh, Tim Keller. I'm gonna. I don't want to butcher it. He said, "We become anxious if we believe that God." doesn't have the future in his hands and it's not in his interest and we become bitter when we think he's gotten it wrong. So, yeah, the future. The, here's what I had, the lost. One, one that I had, the, the, the second one that came to mind was the salvation of my children. Like, I really want my children to believe. I want them to be holy. I want them to be obedient. I want them to walk rightly. And sometimes I can act as if I care about that more than God does and it makes me very anxious. Struggles with sin. Be- the beauty of the church. I mean, as a pastor, that's something that I want this bride to be beautiful. And if I'm not careful, I can act as if I care about it more than God does. And I'll see things going on. I'm like, God, why are we being such blemishes? And God's doing work in, in our lives. Finances, stress, anxiety. You-, you don't care about things more than God. Not-, not one thing. There's not a single thing you care about more than God cares about it. I'm, you know, it's a good point, Jerry. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and put it on the list with everybody else. Um, he, he has more interest in your bike racing than you do. So the work that God's doing here is raising up the Chaldeans to be an instrument of justice against the godless leadership of Israel. So to be clear, the major power in this moment is the Assyrians, and God is saying in his answer, um, I'm going to raise up the Babylonians to overcome the Assyrians, and then eventually once they've overcome the Assyrians and separated from them, first they'll separate from the Assyrians, and then they're going to overcome the Assyrians, and then they're going to come and deal with you and your people, and eventually punish Israel for all the injustice. So God's instrument of choice is a bitter, hasty, brutal nation of terrorists, essentially. In verses 7 through 11, we see all these things about the nature of Babylon, and I think it's a good reminder that not only does God know what's going on with Israel, not only does God hear Habakkuk, 
apparently God knows the motives behind the evil ones that he's going to utilize. Apparently God knows the condition of their horses, the fierceness of their horsemen, how the fierceness of the horsemen compares to the eagle. He knows their view towards leadership. When those guys roll up on a little village that thinks they got a strong leader and they scoff at that village, God heard him. God knows exactly who they are. God knows exactly what's in their evil little hearts. And he even says they're guilty men whose own might is their God. The the irony. God is saying, God, uppercase G, is saying, your God is your might. So I'm going to use that might however I want. And when I'm done with you, you'll end the way all other injustice ends. That's where we go. That's where we're going next week. Turn over to Romans 8.28. That's what we're going to end with. This is a hard truth that, honestly, it's getting... I just feel like it's something we need to be reminded of over and over again because of the condition of our world, because of the hatred, because of... I mean, Facebook's about to introduce a dislike button and things are going to get way more negative around here. I mean, it's going to be a significant thing for our culture. We're going to look back at the dislike button. And, and everyone's going to... You, you can be like, I'm having a great day. And some jerk is going to dislike the fact that you're having a great day. It's just inevitable. And, and then you unfriend them. And yeah, that's right. That's right. You dislike my statement on my wall. I will unfriend you and you will be allowed to see my wall. Ooh. And so... Um, but in reality, I mean, there's so much negativity, and the news is essentially re- what they see without taking God into account. And so in Romans 8.28, it says this, and I want us to consider this in closing. 8.28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. I think the first time I ever heard that was when I was in the middle of a trial and it made me mad. It's like, thank you, annoying Christian person, for telling me all things work together for good. Well, I'm hurting right now. I'm confused right now. I'm angry right now. The situation stinks. And all you have is all things work together for good. This is one of those realities that you really have to let simmer. And one of those realities that you really have to meditate on when you're not in the middle of the trial. That's what we do with God's promises. We know the promises. We embrace the promises. We talk about the promises. We remind one another of the promises. We meditate on the promises. And then when a trial comes along, that that promise is much more meaningful to us than if someone just inserts solution to problem in the moment and annoys us. We should be meditating on the promises of God. And when we do that and someone comes along and says, remember, God works all things together for good. You don't look at them and want to punch them in the throat. You say, thank you. That is a promise I've meditated on, and it means more to me right now because I meditated on it. So here's what I want you to consider. Have you ever considered that there is not one thing in your life that God doesn't promise to use for your ultimate good and the ultimate good of the people who you are a part of? God never gives you what's bad for you. It's hard to say that. I've said it in a sermon before, one time, 
And all I could think about was the very significant trials that people were going through who were sitting here, real people with real trials and real heartache, real confusion. Yet it remains, God never gives you what's bad for you. It may feel bad for you. Habakkuk certainly felt like it was bad for him. Habakkuk felt like it was so bad that he's looking at God saying, get off of your backside and get up and do something. That's how, that's how much it felt like that. But there's a promise that goes above how it feels. The promises of God should be more, more beautiful and more wonderful to us than the way we feel. And they inform those emotions. They inform those feelings. And so in Romans 8, 28, we know that for those, we know for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. The immediate future for Israel was really bad. The immediate future for Israel was going to be hard. Things were going to get worse. However, in the long run, for the people of God who were true, who were genuine, who loved Him, it would all work together for good. You can't see it in the moment. It's hard. That's why we're called to weep with those who weep. Because God's people shouldn't weep alone. That's why we're called to rejoice with those who rejoice, because we know that the trials are so significant. We have to celebrate the times where we overcome those trials. But it's a, it's a good stopping point for us tonight to remember, God will never give you what's bad for you. And so the question I want to leave you with is, when is that hardest for you to believe? That's the question I just want to leave you. I don't want anyone to answer out loud. I'm going to pray, but when is it hardest for you to believe that God never gives you that which is bad for you. Let's pray. Lord, I'm thankful for your word. I'm thankful for the reminders tonight that you care far more about injustice than we do, that you are far more attentive to the unstable conditions throughout our world than we are. You're more in tune with the heart of the terrorists than we are. You're more concerned with the salvation of our children than we are. You're more, you have more insight and wisdom into the education of our children than we have. You love lost people more than we do. Lord, help us to never view, our circ- view you through, the cir- through our circumstances, but help us to view our circumstances through you. I pray that we would be a people of truth always eager to shine the bright light into a dark corner. And Lord, I pray for, um, for those who are here tonight that might, for the first time, really be dealing with uh, when it is the hardest to believe that you never give us what's bad for us. And so I pray that in each of those circumstances that um, Christian brothers and sisters would come alongside one another and uh, reason together and pray together and weep together and rejoice together. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would be honored and glorified um, as your people come out of a time in your word. And I hope that we would be changed. I hope that we'd be honest. Ultimately, I hope that we'd be more discerning in regards to the truth. We love you, Lord. We thank you for Christ. We thank you that it is not about the good things that we can do. It's not about our track record. It's about a righteousness that's outside of us that is, that is counted as ours as a free gift because we have the privilege of loving you and knowing you because of the access you've granted to us in Christ. You are so good. Thank you, Lord, that none of us have to leave here and go earn our spot in heaven. 
Thank you that we don't have to earn our spot in righteous standing in some scenario that we think we care about more than you do. We love you, Lord. We do pray for wisdom. We do want insight. We want the same things Habakkuk wants, and we believe that you're a God who can bring about that change. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.